the Center for Medical Simulation presents Welcome to Sim Fails and other conversations from the Sims so far. You're here with Marcus Rowell from Germany. And it's Casey Freeman all the way from Australia. And Janice Pelaganis from America. <laughs> America. So wonderful to be here with you, my friends, over coffee today. Uh, I had something I wanted to sort of chat about. Tell us about it, Kirsty. <sighs> okay. I ran this session, um, it's probably going back uh, a little while, where um, it was a lunchtime session uh, at a clinical facility where people didn't register. People rocked up for the midday sim, depending on whether, you know, the afternoon. Stuff. I have to pause you there. Rocked up. Oh, oh I love it. I love it. This is this is Auss- Aussie language here. All right. So rocked up translates to came along. <laughs> they came along to my simulation session. So I had no idea how many people were going to come, what the makeup of the learners were going to be, because depending on the acuity of patients on the ward or in the emergency department, it would vary as to how many people could get off the floor. So I had a simulation planned. It was going to be a relatively nice, simple uh, sepsis presentation in the emergency department that was going to be managed by whatever team of learners came to the session. Now, as you know, a good way to get learners to come to stuff is to provide food. So it was a lunchtime (laughs) session with food provided and everyone came. Every undergraduate student in the hospital, all the junior doctors, I would well, come too. I thought it was a rock concert. Oh, they did. They did. There was sandwiches, people. Sandwiches. I would come for sandwiches. I thought so. <laughs> so here I am, a great educator. I'm overwhelmed by the number of people that want to do my sim. So what would normally be a couple of people around a bedside, I now was throwing people in the simulation willy-nilly. Uh, in other words, the more the merrier, because I was thinking as an educator, these people had given up their time to come off the ward. They wanted to be involved mm. in SIM. I would be doing them a disservice if I didn't get them the opportunity to be hands-on. Yeah, so yeah. I ended up, I think, with four ED doctors of varying range from interns to residents, uh, a couple of nurses and maybe a physio who are around this poor simulated patient in the bed. Wait, you threw them all, the I, four physicians yeah, and the entire, I did. Oh, okay. I did. This is interesting. I know. And um, surprisingly, that, that large team managed this patient really well. And my sim came to an end quite quickly and we moved into the debrief. So there I was about to debrief and I asked the, the young resident that was taking on the role of the team leader during the simulation, you know, how they felt. and. He came out and said, it was ridiculous. And I said, oh, can you tell me more about that? <laughs> and With a smile. With a smile. <laughs> and um, she said, never would I have that many doctors and nurses around a bed as I'm seeing a patient. She said it wasn't realistic. And I'm there reflecting during this debrief, looking back on the simulation I've just facilitated, and I went, She's so right. In my keenness and eagerness to get all these learners actively involved in the simulation, I derailed it um, and I made things really difficult for the participants because they weren't able to interact during the simulation as they would in their normal clinical environment 
because I gave them too many people that they would never come across. Hmm. So that's my failure that I wanted to share today was my inability to really think about the effective numbers of learners that needed to be in my simulation. People wonder how to handle that because typically only one person goes into a, well, I guess depending on your setting, but usually one practitioner, whether, you know, depending on profession, will go in at one time to speak with the patient. Very rarely, unless you're rounding, do you have teams of people surrounding the patient. I mean, I knew that. it doesn't feel real. It wasn't. So I don't know if you guys have been in that situation where you've sort of made the same mistake, um, but it you know, it was, a, it was a big reflective moment for me, not only during the debrief as that participant blurted it out to me saying that I, as the educator, had stuffed up, but it's something that I've really reflected on and I can say I've changed my practice. Um, yeah. And you so, want to do something good, right? And you know how simulation is run and then you make mistakes because you want to comfort the participants. They came here, as you said, they took their time off and then you want to accommodate as many as possible and then you make these failures and then you are taking the time of all of them because it's not so effective. So at the end, kind of not good for all. It's a problem. And it, I was thinking when you, it, I think it was in the emergency department. Yep. So there, at least in our German emergency departments or ICUs, it really can happen that you are over flooded with professionals, even in the real world. So, you know, if there's a shift handover and you might end up in an emergency with three or four doctors and several nurses. So, so at least it's imaginable to sometimes have so many people and then to discuss how do you manage that in the clinical. Correct. That's right. And that might be one of your learning objectives about how to, you know, that, that crisis resource management component, how do you manage people, yeah. your, your resources, your physical resources. Yeah. But certainly as I ref- yeah, Janice. I'm loving the current research and this trend of people studying um, activating observers. And, and what they are finding, at least in the few articles that I've read recently, there are some that are finding that observing participants learn more than the participants that are actually <laughs> in the room taking care of the patient. Probably, I, I'm speculating because of cognitive load. Um, you know, when you're in the spotlight, light, you're just looking to perform. And as an observer, you can kind of see and process a little quicker without that cognitive load. Um, but then there's also studies that show it's exactly the same as going in. But I think the key takeaway is that it's either the same or better to be an observer. And I think, uh, you know, just like you, Kirsty, I think back in the day, I was thinking we had to get them to... Um, have the emotional experience of being in the room and that would activate, you know, the dopamine rushes in your brain so that you can have these great uh, discussions where you can actually start imprinting yeah. knowledge and things from your conversation, but it's not really the case. Yeah. So uh, uh, the solutions that I've come up with today, I'd be curious to know what you guys are doing in your current practice but now I, I pay attention and during my scenario development phase, think about the number of participants that need to, yeah. to participate. Um, and therefore, because I still don't know when I run a lot of my simulations, how many learners will attend the sessions, I have some backups. And that means that when I know people can observe, I give them active things to do whilst observing. So if I'm running a simulation that might be looking at a 
the implementation of a various algorithm or a checklist, I might ask those um, uh, extra learners who are going to um, observe um, instead of actively participate, I might ask them to take some notes whilst watching. And because I'm often a, a sole practitioner in the simulations that I deliver, you know, I'm having to run a mannequin if there's a mannequin involved, provide some observations, it can be an extra help for me to have these observers taking those so that I can get them to help contribute during the debrief. So they're some of the little techniques that I've started to use in my practice for those extra learners that come along to a session. Yeah, I think that's nice great. Yeah. The other thing that I do to activate observing participants is you can give them an assessment tool and that's fantastic because they usually have behavioral anchors in that tool so that when you are in the debriefing and you're on that topic let's say it's teamwork um, they can basically read off the sheet yeah. and give the actual behavior that they saw which serves as objective data um, in the debriefing which is really nice and then the number of participants, I love that you said that, especially with interprofessional education, mm -hmm. because when you do interprofessional education, you kind of take whatever you get because scheduling is like the number one Correct. problem. And so sometimes you'll get like 20 nurses and one physician. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and so really trying to keep the number of participants equal as much as possible for IPE is really important. And then I like the strategy you talked about, Marcus, which is generalizing, you know, yes, it probably didn't work for you. Uh, when, ha when have you seen something like this in your actual practice? Yeah. What, one problem I see when you have people only looking at the, only watching, you know, so they know they will not be in an active role in the next scenario because you only do one scenario, that they are kind of less polite in the debriefing with their colleagues but we see when we have you know 12 people and they rotate everyone knows that they will be the next in the debriefing in the scenario so they are a little bit more polite and and uh, cautious with their comments to their team buddies so but i'm always afraid of pure watchers yeah, no, I think you bring up a good point. But what I liked about your form that you referred to, Janice, that has those behavioural markers, it's giving those observers some sort of guidelines and things that they can report yeah. back and contribute. And maybe that'll help Marcus with that. Yeah, that's um, right. Those, that potential for, you know, uninvited negativity. Um, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Very nice said. But I, I like what you're talking about, though, Marcus, the... Um, like the the last thing you want to do is start conflict between participants that when they leave you, you've now caused some sort of impact on their behavior with each other. Yeah. Um, and, you know, a, a kind of kink in the psychological safety. Yeah. When you do have observing participants and and I think I think all of that goes into the pre-brief. Like the more you can set up that safe container in the pre-briefing to know that that's not what you're there for and you know people aren't going to be as graceful in your in their practice as they would in the normal clinical environment i think setting those expectations and um, i think you called them ground rules or what did you call them yeah in in another episode so like ground rules for for working together yeah yeah that's right 
Well, I think that's it again for another episode. I'm so glad you guys were here to um, to help me through dealing with my failures to date. But I hope that our listeners will think about techniques that they're using to deal with large numbers of participants or more participants than you had thought about and what they're doing. And maybe they could share with us on our hashtag, hashtag SimFails. Yes, please do so. And and. And comment their strategies. Yeah. I think that would be great if you can start commenting on on any of our podcasts and the strategies you use to help other people. Well, enjoy your coffee, guys. (laughs) Thanks, Kirsty. Bye-bye. Great story. Sim Fails and other conversations from the Simulation Sofa. It's brought to you by the Center for Medical Simulation. Find out more at harvardmedicine.org.